You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I know it's been a rough week for you, Tom, but it's been just as rough on me. So this is George McGovern, Senator from South Dakota and nominee of the Democratic Party in 1972, meeting with his running mate, Vice Presidential nominee Tom Eagleton, sitting on sofas in the living room of his campaign fundraiser. The campaign is in trouble. Revelations have come out about Eagleton that just won't go away. McGovern may want to drop Eagleton. Eagleton does not want to leave the ticket. Two men talking, and it's awkward. How do you feel, Tom? Fine, George. Do you think you can put up with the rigors of the campaign now? George, I'm twice as strong as I was before. Well, let's take a night and sleep on it, Tom. Two men talking, but the thing is, if you travel through time, this sofa conversation in 1972, mano a mano, has been repeated, perhaps, many a time through history. Nixon and Agnew by the fireplace. Please, Biro, we could find a place for you. Maybe Japan. FDR writing a sort of endorsement of his VP, Henry Wallace, that he'd like him on the ticket again, but leaving the door open. Abraham Lincoln agreeing with Hannibal Hamlin that his VP wasn't treated well, and maybe we can get you in as a Treasury Secretary. Gerald Ford and Rockefeller. Sorry, Rocky. Eisenhower and Nixon, suggesting to Nixon that maybe a cabinet position. Presidents, presidential candidates, and their vice presidents and vice presidential candidates detaching. McGovern's case, he wasn't the president, but the same dynamics happen. Most of us did not expect to nominate a man who began with only 5% in the polls. Surely I did not expect to stand before you tonight as the Democratic nominee for Vice President of the United States. It is thus with deep humility in the face of the responsibility you've asked me to assume. McGovern was in a spot and had been in a spot. The His campaign had taken over the establishment Democratic Party in 1972. They beat all of the big city bosses. They didn't even get Chicago Mayor Richard Daley, who had an iron control on the Illinois Democratic delegation, didn't even allow his delegation to get to this convention in Miami Beach, 1972. They totally took over. They won. They had a limited time, though. 
after fighting in the convention to pick a running mate. Ted Kennedy was a possibility, but he kept McGovern waiting. Ted Kennedy had his own scandal brewing with the Chappaquiddick affair, so he couldn't run for president himself unless the convention somehow deadlocked and went to him. That wasn't going to happen. And now it was a choice of, did the Kennedys want to be in a number two spot? And while this is all going on in a hotel room, Senator is locked up because he's afraid of saying anything to the press. No interview could help him. He's taking only a few phone calls. One of them is from Frank Mankiewicz, one of the aides for George McGovern. Frank Mankiewicz simply asks him, Do you have any skeletons? Eagleton says no. Maybe he was right, or maybe he lied. Tom Eagleton is now a household word. In a lot of ways, Eagleton's a good choice. He's from Missouri, which is a border southern state. He's connected with the Democratic establishment, really tight with the labor movement, with the kinds of people that the McGovernites beat in the election. He's good friends with Edmund Muskie, who had been the Democrats' choice for vice president in 1968, running on our Hubert Humphrey and was a leading contender for 1972 before his campaign exploded. Eventually, frustrated with the dithering from the Kennedy side, George McGovern makes the call, and Eagleton is eager to do it. So eager that George McGovern's wife thinks, maybe something's wrong. So let us stand for justice and jobs and against special privilege, and this is the time to stand for those things that are close to the American spirit. It's within a day after McGovern makes his acceptance speech and Thomas Eagleton makes his acceptance speech and they're well-received. The McGovernites have won. The candidate of the Democratic Party is the most far-left one could say ever. But this is a time where this might be welcome because of the tremendous opposition to the Vietnam War policies of both Lyndon Johnson and now the first term of Richard Nixon. The staffers for McGovern are exhausted. They have a fundraiser who's a businessman in the Virgin Islands, and he invites them to his place for vacation, and they take him up on it. So much of the campaign apparatus is on vacation the next day. And that's when the press starts getting rumors. First, vague rumors about Eagleton. Perhaps he's drinking. Perhaps there were some traffic tickets that were fixed. Maybe a DWI. Maybe because of who he was, state legislator and attorney general. Perhaps a Missouri state trooper might have fixed some tickets. More rumors. The two matters of record that the superintendent of the Missouri Highway Patrol had on his sheet. One was a $35 fine I paid, paid, paid in Fulton, Missouri, Callaway County in 19, I don't have my notes, 63. The other was uh, on an icy, sleety, frozen, rainy day, driving from St. Louis to Kansas City. I started to slide off the road. If you've ever had that feeling, it's the eeriest in the world where your car just starts to slide with you. And I hit what I call a horse. 
it's a wooden saw thing, you know what I mean? Like a V-shaped thing with a board across the top. I hit that and it damaged my left front fender and it was it was a parse born to the Missouri Highway Department and it was reported to the department of how the incident occurred. Then this comes out. Did he go to the hospital and perhaps get shock therapy? Eventually, Eagleton himself reveals that, yes, indeed, he did receive electrocution therapy or ECT. He gives a variety of excuses. He says it was a very quick incident. And at first, he says it was a stomach ache that led to some depression. And now he's fine that he was just exhausted from his campaigning in Missouri. Govern and Eagleton meet in South Dakota, the running mates, to do a press conference. And McGovern had really not known Eagleton well as a meeting with the senator and with both of their wives. And he struggles a bit about what to do. He's asking Eagleton some tough questions about his stories, writing it all down on a legal pad. But in the end, McGovern decides to move forward with Eagleton. I mean, how could he not? And then he goes out to the press in the Black Hills and says to reporters that he is 1,000% behind Senator Eagleton. Why? Well, as Gary Hart explains, McGovern had to do that. Yes, that Gary Hart. He's McGovern's campaign manager, and not unlike Eagleton, he's already developing a rep for being a little odd, but enough of that for now. Gary Hart is, like McGovern, torn about how to react, but he's not torn about this statement. If you're going with Eagleton, you have to go 1,000%. You can't say 89. 100% looks defensive. Even if they sort of had to say it, though, those words, 1,000%, would come to haunt. Jack Anderson, the journalist, publishes rumors about a drunk driving arrest. He later admits, Eagleton, that he had a few tickets, speeding tickets. It's a ride from St. Louis to Jefferson City, state capital. Eagleton goes west. He campaigns in Hawaii, but the questions remain, especially because to some reporters, it's not adding up. A stomach ache that led to depression? How long did he go to this therapy for? How many treatments did he have? We're a very sophisticated country, thank God. And we're not going to let a Jack Anderson or somebody else drive politicians who've devoted their entire life to public service to drive them out of office. I'm not quitting. I'm not getting out. We're going to win this election, and I'm going to be the next vice president of the United States. Cameras follow him in a way we are used to now, but it was somewhat new then. Eagleton, for these days, is becoming a phenome. And McGovern struggles with all of this. It takes 18 days. And during that 18 days, McGovern can't focus on anything. Not on the Vietnam War. Not on poverty. Not on President Nixon. The administration that he's running against. Instead, he's focusing on his own running mate. Hear from uh, Joshua Glasser's book, The 18-Day Running Mate by Yale University Press. Good book. I found it interesting. Yet in the 17 days since Eagleton joined the ticket, the tone of the media's coverage had changed. A string of anonymous calls and the investigative legwork of two journalists had finally compelled Eagleton to reveal on day 12 the secret he had long concealed, that he had been hospitalized for nervous exhaustion and fatigue three times over the previous decade and treated with electroshock therapy twice. Though the running mate insisted he was a cured man capable of weathering the strain of the campaign trail and the duties of the vice presidency, Eagleton's revelation provided a reason for serious concern. McGovern, in turn, initially guaranteed that there is no one sounder in body, mind, and spirit to serve as his running mate than the thousand percent. But escalating pressure from his staff, supporters, and reporters soon prompted McGovern to reconsider his stance. 
placed, it will almost certainly require Eagleton's cooperation. As one McGovern lieutenant put it, George McGovern must not appear to be ruthless. If it comes to that, Eagleton must announce an unequivocal withdrawal. And McGovern must accept it with deep regret. Here's what Hunter Thompson says about the effect of Eagleton on the campaign. This is what he writes in his Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972. The sailboat turned around, though not so dramatically as one could say McGovern had reversed directions. The senator canceled a press conference, which meant he didn't think it wise to repeat all his lines about his full support for Eagleton. His staff people, both in Washington and South Dakota, began to speak more freely about the disaster confronting them, and even the inevitability of Eagleton withdrawing. McGovern issues another order, telling the staff people to keep mum. At that point, the presidential nominee might have been content to keep quiet and let opinions develop naturally over the weekend. Except, Eagleton was picking up the signals too. As McGovern's staff began raising the possibility of changing horses, Eagleton kept charging forward. He would never step down, he said, on Friday afternoon. Never? It's a strong word to use in politics, and obviously it needed strong correction action from McGovern's end, the seesaw. What McGovern did was either very slick or very clumsy. The people who watched it still are not sure which is. He distributes the text of a speech he's going to deliver to reporters that Saturday. And essentially, it says that the campaign is deliberating about the situation. This is really retreating from full support to try to get a trial balloon out there and get some stories in the press. McGovern's also sitting down with some reporters and having some conversations. McGovern's in a bind about this. Now, approaching midnight on Sunday, July 30th, it seemed almost certain that McGovern would ask Eagleton to leave the ticket. Tom Eagleton did not want to leave the ticket. So McGovern wanted to speak to Eagleton in private. And so, 5 p.m., McGovern and Eagleton dodge the press in front of each of their houses and head to a secret meeting point. The residence of the campaign finance chairman, Henry Kimmelman. McGovern spoke up. Tom, tell me what you feel in your heart. Eagleton replies, I'll give you a double answer. In my heart, conscience, and soul, I want to remain on the ticket. When you picked me, I was an absolute zero. I didn't add a damn thing to the ticket, and I didn't subtract anything. But now that this has happened, I'm actually a help. People are responding well. Eagleton had just gone to Hawaii and saw adoring crowds. Of course, what he's probably not considering in this conversation is that they were at Democratic rallies in Hawaii. These were people that loved the Democratic ticket, that liked the anti-Vietnam position. McGovern whispers to Tom, you're one hell of a guy. Let's go home and sleep on it. Eagleton kind of spies Gary Hart outside the meeting, not saying anything, but just quiet and observing. And he knows that Hart is about to give his advice to George McGovern. And it's no secret that Hart wants Eagleton off the ticket. Tom Eagleton knew that. You know the rest of the story. McGovern, after 18 days, replaces Thomas Eagleton with Sergeant Shriver, a former head of the Peace Corps, and a good friend and in-law of the Kennedys. Mr. Shriver, I wonder if, if you could tell us if Senator Kennedy had any special advice or recommendations or suggestions to uh, for you. He said that... Uh, before Senator McGovern called me and discussed the nomination, he said that he would be very happy if I happened to be the nominee and that he would work all out for the ticket and that if I ever got the offer, to accept it as fast as I could. <laughs> there are new T-shirts issued. There are new pins issued. There are new posters. 
new bumper stickers. The great advantage we have is an early convention. This is only the 9th of August. It was almost the 9th of September before the campaign got underway four years ago. We're ready to go now, and I think we're going to win. Newsweek has a very good time. A lot of fun with it. They have a picture of a cutout where Thomas Eagleton is cut and Sergeant Shriver is put in next to McGovern. That image may not remain in history, but it perhaps it does remain in political folklore, and perhaps it has influenced modern choices about VPs and presidents and presidential candidates, perhaps, too, that if you pick it, you stick with it. Sort of my personal beliefs that the... Eagleton issue would, would fade away through this month of August, around the first day of August. You know, I'd go to enough cities so that uh, Barry Serafin would get tired of asking me in every city of the country about my health and that it would run its course. But an argument can be made that uh, it would linger on. So I'm not here to say who's categorical right or who's categorical wrong. I'll just say that George McGovern could not have been finer to me. I believe in him as much as I did in Miami. And I'm going to work for him, maybe work for him doubly hard. For some people, the reason that McGovern lost, as they do their autopsy of the campaign, is this change um, in the ticket. McGovern himself feels this way. Hunter Thompson, political reporter and gonzo journalist for Rolling Stone, he felt that McGovern looked tricky, crafty, typical politician. There's a lot of other explanations, too. McGovern generally was more liberal on issues than the average American person. I mean, outside of the Vietnam War issue. He lost the support of key Democrats, particularly in the South, where they were just running along with Nixon. John Connolly, the governor of Texas, is with Nixon and heading up Democrats for Nixon. Some of the more established Democrats are hands-off, maybe lending a little bit of help, but not much. Ted Kennedy, for all his, you know, vetoing candidates, because if you pick that person, I'm not going to support you, does very little to support the ticket anyway. Here's McGovern after the campaign, interviewed by Hunter Thompson himself. Do you think it would be possible to say discount if you could just wipe out the whole Eagleton thing and assume that Mondale or Nelson had taken it and there had been no controversy to try to remove the vice presidential thing as a factor? What do you think? And McGovern responds, I think it would have been very close. I really do. I think we would have gotten off the ground fast and I think we'd have capitalized on those early trips and that the press would have been more enthusiastic about it. And they had been reporting the size of the crowds and the enthusiasm we were getting instead of looking at the staff problem. The campaign actually was very well run compared to others that I've seen. The fundraising was a miracle the way that it was run. The crowds were large and well advanced, and the schedules went off reasonably day after day. I didn't think there were major gaps, but there were some right at the beginning that haunted us all the way. Yesterday was a very happy day for me. Under all the circumstances, I received literally... Literally dozens and dozens. I, I would take, I would guess, over a hundred phone calls that I personally took from people all over the country, rich people, poor people, important people. It's one of the greatest landslides in history. Uh, Nixon loses only one state, Massachusetts. I think the Kennedy family and Sergeant Shriver helps there. And McGovern loses even his own state. Nixon wins South Dakota. McGovern wins the District of Columbia. Nixon wins New York City, which is the first time that a Republican candidate for president has won New York City in some time. It's just a, a landslide blowout. 
A lot of the story of 1972 is known, uh, but there's some things that aren't well known. One is that Thomas Eagleton didn't want to leave the ticket. He strongly felt that he was an asset. He unified the party and felt he dealt with the media well. He says, you know, to one of the McGovern staffers, hey, he may not win with me, but he's not going to win without me. That's where Eagleton was. And there was a tension between the running mates and their staff during these 18 days. McGovern felt blindsided by all of this and felt that he had asked and had been vetted and had vetted Eagleton, and Eagleton should have revealed this. Thomas Eagleton's wife, after his death, revealed that a person who is cured believes that they're cured. And there was no reason when he was asked, were there any skeletons in the closet, and and both sides disagree about the tenor of the conversation between Frank Mankiewicz and Thomas Eagleton, but both sides agree that that was the only vetting that took place, one phone call. But if he was asked, are there any skeletons in the closet, there was no reason for him to identify that treatment as a skeleton. As far as he was concerned, he was cured. One of the things I think people should always remember when you tell the story of 1972 and Thomas Eagleton is that Eagleton remained a uh, senator from Missouri and was reelected several times. He's going to be there in the Senate uh, as one of the key opponents of the Contras during the Reagan administration. So we shouldn't think of Eagleton as somebody who was like disgraced and then kicked out of politics forever. Yes, his national tryout didn't work. Eagleton felt that McGovern's staffers were working against him to get rid of him, and that would be a detriment both to him and to the ticket. In an appearance on Meet the Press by DNC chairwoman Jean Westwood, who was somebody that McGovern had appointed to that position, she seemed to suggest that Eagleton needed to leave the ticket. Eagleton read it as a sign that McGovern was trying to get him off without telling him directly. Eagleton considers an anti-McGovern statement. That's how angry he is about all of this. His wife talks him out of it. After this is over, you want a career as a senator. If you sabotage the party's nominee, everybody will be against you. But there's something else we should know about Eagleton and McGovern in 1972. The Nixon White House was tracking the Eagleton story and may have known about his FBI file and about the ECT therapy. They probably knew. In fact, the Eagleton thing comes out in some of the reporting on Watergate. In May 1973, the Washington Post reporters, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, suggested that White House Domestic Chair Chief John Ehrlichman had received Eagleton's medical records several weeks before the information was released to the news media. And in All the President's Men, the book, quotes a Deep Throat's explanation of E. Howard Hunt's leak-plugging operation, the plumbers that work for the President's campaign. That operation was not only to check leaks to the papers, Deep Throat told the journalists, it was often to manufacture items for the press. A Colson hunt operation, he said. Recipients include all of you guys, Jack Anderson, Evans, Novak, The Post, and The New York Times. The author of the book, The 18-Day Running Mate, uh, highly recommended, by the way. I can only delve into this too, a little bit. You should go uh, read this book if you're more interested in the story. He interviewed Frank Mankiewicz, one of McGovern's aides, for the book. And when he asked Mankiewicz about the identity of the leaker, yeah, yeah, anonymous source is what he said. It was either Chuck Colson or Pat Buchanan. That's what I always thought. And he said, Mankiewicz, 
that a well-placed source corroborated those suspicions for him. See, Watergate is the end of the story, and Nixon's resignation is the end of the story. The beginning of the story is a large operation of kind of dirty tricks, um, doing things like, say, putting out statements on a campaign's letterhead that they never made, uh, playing one candidate against the other, all in an attempt to get McGovern, the one that the Nixon campaign feel was the easier person to beat on the ticket. They do the Canuck letter, which is a statement that Edmund Muskie never made because Muskie was really appearing to be the strongest Democratic candidate in 1972. So the idea of fake news and things that are doctored and enter into the news media, maybe with a political agenda, uh, we may think it's new. Not new at all. If you're sending something either to thousands of people via social media or you're sending things to the most influential people in the papers at that time, columns that were repeated in many newspapers, it's almost the exact same thing. Here's a weird part of the whole McGovern and Eagleton story. President Nixon writes a letter, not to Thomas Eagleton, not to George McGovern, but to Thomas Eagleton's son, Terry, after Eagleton is forced to step down from the Democratic ticket in 1972. To Terry Eagleton from the President of the United States, Richard Nixon. In the words of Churchill, we can find some comfort. The political man can always come back again. Years later, you will look back and say, I am proud of the way my dad handled himself in the greatest trial of his life. So this is a real odd thing, not well known. A letter from Richard Nixon to the son of a political opponent. So, how do you look at this? One bit of context is that Terry Eagleton had visited the White House and had seen Nixon as a guest of Senator Tom Eagleton, along with his father. So, Nixon had met him, but it is odd that he's writing a letter to the son. Some of it's that just that kind of Nixon psyche that I think much has been written about. The victim and underdog and always seeing enemies and maybe reaching out to somebody that he felt was treated unfairly. He was always kind of bitter and seeing himself that way. Uh, maybe had some sympathy. But I can't help hearing about that letter without any corroboration for it that can be proved. I can't help seeing in it a little bit of guilt, perhaps. Maybe the White House had something to do, at least with the disclosure of the story. It's not that far-fetched. Uh, we know that possibly the FBI knew about Eagleton's condition. We also knew that the entire Watergate scandal came out of the result of those dirty tricks. Uh, finding medical records would not be difficult. Eagleton's medical records were in Washington University Hospital in St. Louis, would not be difficult to obtain those paper records for somebody who had pulled off Watergate or not pulled off Watergate in the same year. A little bit of speculation, but it's something to think about. McGovern, during his life after his campaign, really varied between his opinions of what to do. The issues surrounding mental health in 1972 just weren't fleshed out among the American people. And it was still part of the Cold War. The Soviets were still there. There was a lot of attention still on nuclear weapons and 
can somebody press the button at the right time and having a vice presidential candidate, you know, fit was an important thing. In 1992, in an interview, McGovern still said that he was mixed about whether he should have kept Eagleton on the ticket, whether it would have helped him or not. Relentless focus on Eagleton and his problems were the big cause of his loss, McGovern felt, and they were never able to get back to Nixon. They needed to take action. By 2011, McGovern had admitted that he probably should have kept Eagleton on the ticket. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Speaking of regrets, Gerald Ford was asked, what was his greatest mistake as a president? And it was this, switching out his running mate, his vice president, Nelson Rockefeller, who he had nominated and who Congress, the first time ever, or actually the second time, including Ford's own nomination and approval, the House and Senate had approved him using the procedure of the 25th Amendment. But in the run-up to the 1976 campaign, facing a strong challenge, Ronald Reagan and other conservatives, Ford said that he would not continue Nelson Rockefeller, the former governor of New York and a Republican moderate, on the 76 GOP ticket. He wrote to a reporter who had been keeping all of his private thoughts to be released only when Gerald Ford died, I was angry at myself for showing cowardice. So, Gerald Ford swapping out Nelson Rockefeller on the ticket is the most recent example, 1976, of a vice presidential switch by the party in the White House. And it was a failure. But not every time this happened in history was it a failure. Though it hasn't happened since 1976, it hasn't stopped that issue from coming up again and again. It almost seems like any election where there's going to be an incumbent president. We're going to have a discussion about whether a vice president should be dropped from the ticket. And that discussion goes way back. Picture an older man in a Coast Guard uniform, peeling potatoes, performing that KP duty for his fellows, And then imagine that the man is the vice president of the United States. This is during the Civil War, and Hannibal Hamlin, VP, didn't have much to do. He wasn't always in Washington during the Civil War, during Lincoln's presidency. He was in Maine a lot. Sometimes he'd come down to New York. Lincoln would give him little tasks to do, like, keep track of troops uh, while you're in New York, please. And, uh... In one case, he actually misses the letter with instructions from Lincoln and so goes back to Maine without doing the job. Hannibal Hamlin had a concern that earlier vice presidents had that you don't see so much today about upstaging the boss. 
um, about, you know, making any move. If a VP were to come down to Washington, what does that say? Does it say, like, I want to be on the ready because I don't think this guy's going to last or something like that? So he he tended to go down to Washington only when it was most necessary. One of those moments was during the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation, the first one in 1862. And Hamlin and Lincoln meet and they talk about it. It's one of the good moments of Hamlin's political life that he always records, probably the highlight of his vice presidential service. Hamlin is one of those VPs that issues a lot of the statements we know about being the fifth wheel on the carriage of government and things like that. He doesn't like being vice president, but this moment when Lincoln is sharing that he's about to issue the Emancipation Proclamation with Hamlin, who is a uh, perhaps not a radical but and not an abolitionist, but certainly someone who was against the spread of slavery and who wanted emancipation, at least in the areas where there was war. But Lincoln had already decided on the proclamation. He didn't need advice to decide to do it or not. Lincoln had already made up his mind, and he was consulting someone with the same opinion. Hannibal Hamlin's reason for being on the ticket in 1860 was clear. He was a former Democrat. Lincoln was a former Whig. Those were the two parties where people came from to form the Republican Party, mostly over the issue of slavery. They had hurt each other before. Hamlin knew Lincoln as the best storyteller in the House. Lincoln heard a very impressive speech from Hamlin in the House while he served briefly as a member of Congress. And what might be lost on moderns is that Hannibal Hamlin, now barely remembered as one of the United States' vice presidents. And by the way, you may know I have a Vice President's United States podcast up there on iTunes, and we get into more detail about Hamlin. But it should be known by all that Hamlin was a powerful figure in the opposition to slavery in the United States. He served much longer in Congress than Abraham Lincoln had. Hamlin took on. Jefferson Davis in Congress and argued with all of the Southern senators about the expansion of the peculiar institution. When Stephen Douglas brought his Kansas-Nebraska bill, Hamlin told him it was a disgusting bill and should be withdrawn. It was not. And so the Pierce administration, he being a Democrat and they being a Democratic administration, started to put pressure on him. First, the Attorney General Caleb Cushing says, look, Hamlin if you go for this Kansas-Nebraska bill, we're going to give you all the patronage in New England to control. He said, absolutely not. Then President Franklin Pierce calls him to the White House and says, okay, Hamlin, we get it. You're standing on moral ground. How about you just do it for your party? No, I will not. Later, Hamlin ends up leaving the Democratic Party while he explains it that the party left him and is an influential figure in the new Republican Party. He is the key leader of the Republicans in Maine. He runs for governor. He wins. Maine is an early state. This is one of the reasons he picked in 1862. Maine is an early state, so their elections actually happen before the November election. So it's kind of good to to get an early win, and he does that for the Republican Party in Maine. 
in some ways, he's a much larger figure during the founding of the Republican Party than Abraham Lincoln, although Abraham Lincoln picks up a lot of visibility really close to the 1860 election during his famous debates with Stephen Douglas. But Hamlin had been there. Could have very well been top ticket. Indeed, Maine delegates were holding out and having Hamlin as a favorite son in the, in, a favorite son in the Wigwam Convention of 1860. But they expected that Seward of New York would get that nomination and that perhaps, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln, you know, we'd throw him on the vice presidential ticket. Yeah, yeah, Lincoln was almost a VP, sure. When the convention picked Lincoln, the Lincoln people went to Seward and said, well, you can pick who you want for vice president. Well, he, he didn't want the place. So there was this freestanding, you know, favorite son for Maine. So Hamlin gets it. <laughs> when Hamlin is notified... He's not at the convention in Chicago when he's notified. He said, I don't want the place. I'm in the Senate. But dutifully, he serves. Indeed, Andrew McClure, the Pennsylvania Republican chair, goes to meet the, su- the surprising president-elect of the Republican Party. says, I don't know whether I concealed my disappointment. Tall, gaunt, ungainly, ill-clad, the leader of a great nation in its gravest period. McClure focused on Lincoln's clothes, snuff-colored, slouchy, open black vest held by a few brass buttons, tightly fitting sleeves on his black coat to exaggerate his long and bony arms. Hamlin would have been dressed much better, to be sure. He would be known to wear a swallowtail suit, sometimes blue, proper hat, As vice president, there was little to do, and he didn't always agree with the slower direction that Lincoln was taking. He told uh, John Fremont, he told his wife, um, when she sought out Hamlin's help to get the general a better position with Lincoln, the slow movement of this administration do not meet with my approbations, and that is known, but I am not consulted at all. And to another, he said, I give my advice only when requested. Hamlin, in in reality, served only one political function, and that was to please the radical Northern Democrats. Once there, his political function was gone. But he would serve one more. Hamlin became a piece that could be replaced, replaced to impress others. You know, it's not a common thing. You make someone... You make them vice president, and you keep them. Increasingly, the presidential candidate has much more say in this. So it's really like the president's or the presidential candidate's pick. And then once you've made a pick, why ditch them? Amtrak Joe, Dick Cheney, Al Gore, George H.W., Mondale, who was the first to go to an office near the president. Once you've picked them and say that you have so much faith in them that they could be the number two with enhanced roles that vice presidents didn't have in the past, member of the national security team involved in some way since uh, since the days of Truman. Now you're going to go and say, I don't want this person anymore. You can see why it's a really difficult choice to make to drop somebody. But that thought is hiding behind the surface. A lot of history, a lot of reality where there have been a few close calls. For instance... In his book, Decision Points, George W. Bush says that he wanted his father, George H.W., to drop 
Dan Quayle. Now, what happened with Quayle? Well, Quayle is picked in 1988, and they're, you know, George H.W. Bush is, is under some attack and some pressure from the conservative parts of his party. Beep announcement down to the wire. Conservatives continued their public pleading with Bush to balance the ticket with a voice from the right. You would help us greatly to excite the rank and file, the grassroots, if you select a strong conservative on the social moral, economic, political issues. Reagan, they felt it in, in the conservative circles, Reagan had been too soft with Gorbachev, with the particularly the, the various treaties that had been signed. And so a proponent of um, a more conservative hardline policy, also a young senator who had defeated Birch Bayh in 1980, came in on the Reagan revolution, was Dan Quayle. So he's picked... The choice is such a surprise that Dan Quayle himself comes to the rally where George H.W. Bush is going to announce his VP candidate in the convention in New Orleans. They're at the waterfront and, you know, Secret Service agents have to come over and, are you Quayle? Yes, grab him and put him on the stage. And that's how much of a surprise it was. So we had very little time to prepare. Good evening. Dan Quayle is on the hot seat. The elation surrounding the selection of the Indiana senator to be George Bush's running mate was stifled today by some nagging questions. Dan Quayle prepared to address the GOP National Convention this afternoon as controversy swirled around his upcoming nomination as the Republican vice presidential candidate. It comes out just within a few hours of his choice, that Dan Quayle had served in the Indiana National Guard, uh, Air National Guard, during the Vietnam War. Quayle is the first person put on a national ticket born after World War II. So it's the first time, really, that this issue is coming up in a significant way. Then the story builds, and soon the Bush Campaign 88 is answering not questions about their nominee Michael Dukakis that they're going to be taking on, but about his own running mate. Comes out that perhaps some strings were pulled, maybe a call was made, but there was a waiting list. There's some disagreement whether there was a waiting list or not, and did he advance in that waiting list because of who he was? His father was a judge. Reporters are focusing almost as much on Quayle as they are on Bush. And you have this particular rally in uh, Dan Quayle's hometown where the crowd is starting to get angry at the reporters. And Dan Quayle moves over and shifts the position to where he's answering questions to where the reporters are. And there's a big crowd. And every time the reporters ask a question about his National Guard service that they don't like, there's booze. And every time Dan Quayle answers, there's cheers. Finally, one of the reporters says, is this an appropriate place to have an interview? And this, in 1988, just seems a preview of some of the battles between crowd audiences and reporters that we've seen recently. Quayle was a problem for the ticket, but it, you know, Bush didn't have a problem beating Dukakis in 1988, not a significant one. However, when it came to 1992, Bill Clinton comes on strong. There had been a recession. Uh, people were angry, wanted some change. George Bush is down in the polls. 
It doesn't help matters when prime time TV has Murphy Brown, a character who supposedly epitomizes today's intelligent, highly paid professional woman, mocking the importance of fathers by bearing a child alone and calling it just another lifestyle choice. George W. Bush feels that his father's not gaining any traction in the polls. I told Dad he had to think of a bold move to shake up the dynamics of the race. But George H.W. Bush disagrees with his son's advice to drop quail. He thought the move would look desperate and embarrass Dan. So, so a possible vice presidential switch could have occurred in 1992. So who did uh, George W. Bush want to replace quail with? Dick Cheney, who was then... George H.W., who was then Secretary of Defense and had been Secretary of Defense during the first Gulf War, he writes. But I never gave up on the idea of a Bush-Cheney ticket. And, of course, that happened in 2000. George W. Bush picks Dick Cheney. But there was another possible VP switch in 2004 because George W. Bush also reveals in decision points that Dick Cheney comes to him in 2004, and says, I'm willing to resign or step down from the ticket. You can run with someone else. They're thinking of Bill Frist, then senator from Tennessee. That's offered by Cheney, but George W. Bush does not even consider it. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So the last one where there's actually a switch is Ford and Rockefeller. And for Ford, the reason was to try to pick up some right-wing support. Rockefeller was just a magnet uh, during the 1970s for the GOP conservatives. They just didn't like him, didn't like his policies. But it doesn't really work. Uh, Reagan says, I am not appeased, when he hears about Ford's decision to not have Rockefeller on the ticket. Ford would go on to pick Bob Dole at the convention, an acceptable conservative, um, enough to get support for his candidacy, but not enough to win the election. Loses the election of 1976. History may have hidden another VP switch, a closer one than known. It's possible that John F. Kennedy may have wanted Lyndon Johnson off the ticket. We know about some of the tensions between him and LBJ, but particularly between his brother Robert and LBJ. It's possible that Lyndon Johnson might have had to stand down. Bobby Baker was LBJ's assistant in the Senate and later in the White House. And in 1963, there was an investigation 
Baker had been great at headcounts. He ran the quorum club, you know, for senators and House members outside the Capitol, where they would booze it up and talk and move legislation for it in a formal way. But he was being investigated by the Senate for influence peddling and for beneficial treatment of his vending machine company in government buildings, and he was making money off it. Kennedy's secretary, Evelyn Lincoln, believed that JFK had told her they wanted to drop Lyndon Johnson from the ticket. The trouble is that any public statement from JFK found him being very supportive of Lyndon Johnson remaining on. Johnson, too, thinks he's probably going to be dropped. Robert Caro has a mixed view. He's the big Johnson biographer. Maybe it was LBJ's kind of psychology and constant brooding. But maybe the election dynamics had changed, too. See, they needed a Southerner on the ticket. Um, one of the things JFK is going to say when he's asked this question is, you know, that, that would be foolish. I need a Southerner on the ticket. Well, that was in 1960. By 1964, it was pretty clear, particularly running against the Goldwater that Kennedy would carry a lot of northern states and may not need the solid south anyway, may not win it anyway, even with Johnson on the ticket. They're going to lose some of those states because of the civil rights issue. It's thought that more revelations were coming out, that more investigations were forthcoming, and then after 1963 with JFK's assassination, it just didn't seem proper to start investigating the now president of the United States. 1956. The dump Nixon talk was pretty public. There was some movement at the San Francisco convention, uh, but in the end, no one wanted to run. Governor Goodwin Knight of California, for instance, was a never-Nixoner. But part of the problem was caused by Eisenhower himself. Early in 1956, Eisenhower is asked about Nixon and says, I want to see what the convention decides. He was full of admiration for Nixon, but he would say no more about it. In March of 1956, Ike and Nixon discussed the issue. Nixon told Ike that there was a miscommunication and there was some conflict. Well, Ike suggests that he's been thinking maybe Nixon should consider something in the cabinet, you know, that this job of VP wasn't proper for him, that he wasn't getting the proper experience to be an understudy, just being an understudy, that perhaps... Um, he should get a cabinet position if he wants to run for president someday. This is an interesting thought. So, and you're kind of torn there between whether Eisenhower wants him off, wants to get rid of him in one of the cabinet departments, or whether he's just kind of an older type of thinking that the VP is just somebody waiting for the president to die, say, but not really, other than that, not learning much, not doing much. Nixon says, no, he's not going to do that. So he makes it clear to Eisenhower that he's not going to do that. In April 25th, and this is where I think I lean towards Eisenhower kind of would have rather, at least passively, had him off the ticket. He tells reporters that Nixon hadn't yet made a decision. Nixon decides the next day. He, he writes a letter to Eisenhower, yes, I will accept the vice presidential nomination again. Now Ike tells the press he's delighted. But he doesn't join you know, Nixon in any kind of press conference or anything like that. And then... You know, waits to see what the convention wants. You almost had a VP switch there. It's a press conference during the convention, not at the convention, but in the White House during while the convention's going on, where Eisenhower throws off any talk of running anyone else but Nixon. 
So the last time a sitting VP was removed from the ticket was 1976, and that is 4, 4, 10, double 10, and 9, so 33 years ago. And before that, 1944, so 6, double 10, double 10, double 10, and 9, or 65 years ago, giving this all the look of an ancient political ploy. We don't do that in modern times anymore. That's something the old cigar-smoking bosses did, replacing VPs on tickets. But when you look at recent could-have switches, and you think, well, maybe. doesn't work for Ford, but it did work for Franklin Roosevelt twice. All the good and none of the bad of a VP switch. They raised a commotion about Truman. The, the uh, Dewey Bricker ticket in 1944 showed him, Truman, with clan hoods, tried to attack him on that front. Um, yeah, I mean, here's the guy that would integrate the army a few years later, but they didn't know that in 1944. Uh, didn't work for Benjamin Harrison back in the day. Benjamin Harrison's in some trouble, and the tariffs that he enacts is in pop unpopular. Uh, the Democrats are gaining strength, and so they're going to replace Levi Morton with Whitelaw Reed, who's more exciting for the more progressive elements within the Republican Party at that time. Harrison likes him. Harrison's a little miffed at Levi Morton for having blocked a force bill for enforcement of civil rights in the South, or as VP sitting as president of the Senate and not doing much to help as the bill was filibustered. So the convention replaces Morton with Whitelaw Reed, who's a very progressive newspaper publisher, but also Whitelaw Reed is a great campaigner, and he goes out on the stump for the Harrison-Reed ticket. It doesn't work, and Grover Cleveland wins in the 1892 election. It worked for both Grant and Lincoln. They won their election, switching their VPs. After Colfax gets into some trouble or some allegations, he's replaced with uh, Henry Wilson. So it works for Grant in 1872. Works for Andrew Jackson, who replaces John Calhoun with Martin Van Buren. And we can't say that it worked for, well, it doesn't work for Martin Van Buren, but Martin Van Buren doesn't, gets it, is an odd, is an odd case in 1840. Does he actually replace his vice president, Richard Mentor Johnson? Well, Richard Mentor Johnson had become a problem for the ticket a bit. As vice president, he doesn't do very much. He's mostly spending the time in Kentucky. But uh, he doesn't want to leave the ticket. Martin Van Buren also doesn't want to be seen kicking him off. So what he does is simply not say anything at all. And the convention allows individual states to put him on the ballot, but does not endorse him nationally. Mentor Johnson goes out there campaigning at one rally. He, you know, pulls off his shirt during a speech to show his enthusiasm. I mean, you know, hey. There's a guy that's, you know, willing to give it all for the ticket. It does not work. And in the 1840 election, they go down in defeat. Doesn't work for John Quincy Adams. But it works more than it doesn't work. Let's go back to a successful version of a vice presidential swap. Lincoln and Hamlin. Depending on the storyteller, this was either Lincoln's doing. That's the way Alexander McClure, the Republican head in Pennsylvania, tells it. Or... The way one Hamlin biographer tells it, Lincoln is absolved of any role because it was scheming Republicans, particularly Charles Sumner, who wanted Ham gone. Well, 
This is no small issue at the time, by the way. Everyone's looking at how this happened later because this VP switch is infamous in history. A few years later, Andrew Johnson, who's on the 1864 ticket with Lincoln, becomes vice president, becomes president, and turned out to be a betrayal of the Republicans, particularly the radical Republicans at the time. Everyone's doing some soul-searching, trying to figure out why we didn't keep Hannibal Hamlin on the ticket. McClure notes the delegates were encouraged by Lincoln himself to consider Mr. Johnson. From Hannibal, The Life of Abraham Lincoln's First Vice President by Mark Scroggins. Three days before the convention, Lincoln summoned McClure to the White House. Would you support Andrew Johnson for Vice President? Lincoln asked him directly. McClure was hesitant. He distrusted Johnson and considered him a very able and dangerous demagogue. But Lincoln explained why Johnson was needed on the Union ticket. First of all, Johnson was a brave and aggressive war Democrat who had defended the Union and much sacrifice and personal risk. Next, and McClure thought this was the most important reason to Lincoln, if a Southerner from a reconstructed state were on the ticket, then that would discourage France and England from recognizing the Confederacy. A Southern vice president would certainly discourage Europe from writing the preservation of the United States off as a lost cause. Lincoln stressed that he had no personal preferences for Johnson. He went out of his way to attest that he harbored not a trace of bitterness, prejudice, or even unfriendliness towards Hamlin. When McClure gets to Baltimore, he soon finds out. He soon... Uh, McClure is unconvinced about Johnson, still harbors some doubts, but the president's telling him to do it. So he goes to Baltimore and starts to work the delegates for Johnson. He comes to Baltimore and realizes that Simon Cameron, who is the Pennsylvania uh, Republican leader and was Lincoln's Secretary of Defense, there were some allegations of corruption and he stepped down, and but He's also sent with instructions from Lincoln to Baltimore to help Johnson on the ticket. Cameron and McClure did not know that they were co-conspirators until Cameron walked into McClure's Baltimore hotel room. Over a bottle of wine, the temporary allies began discussing the politics of selecting a vice president. Of course, all these Machiavellian schemes had to be kept secret. Many of Hamlin... Many of Hamlin's friends had no doubt that he would get the nomination. My impression is that you'll be nominated without much opposition. James G. Blaine, himself a former, or himself a future Speaker of the House and presidential candidate, supporter of Lincoln, wrote to Hamlin from Washington, A good many delegates are here today and the feeling seems to be cordial. Israel Washburn Jr. had talked to many delegates and others on the subject of the vice presidency and think you, Hamlin, are to be nominated. Lincoln's secretary, Nicoly, wrote to John Hay at the opening of the convention, Hamlin will probably be nominated VP. The disposition of all the delegates was to take any war Democrat, provided they would add strength to the ticket. None of the names suggested seem to meet this requirement, and the feeling is therefore to avoid any weakness. 
strikes everybody that Hamlin fits this bill. All over the city and among the delegates is a concordant opinion that Mr. Hamlin will be nominated on the first ballot, a correspondent from the New York Tribune wrote. Well, when the Union Convention meets in Baltimore, Johnson leads on the first ballot and wins the second. A rail splitter and a Tennessee tailor, the Richmond Inquirer mocked. And so, to win in 1864, the Republicans feel they want to have a war Democrat, military governor of Tennessee, a Southerner, Andrew Johnson, and Abraham Lincoln on the same ticket. I was dragged out of the Senate against my wishes to become Vice President, Hamlin would say later, and then was unceremoniously whistled down the wind. Well, off the ticket, Hamlin decides to take up a position with the main Coast Guard. It's not as odd as what people might think. It was not uncommon for high-level politicians. I mean, Congress was a part-time job. You go back home and maybe volunteer with the Army if they felt it. Um, Hamlin's in his mid-50s, past his physical prime. But the main Coast Guard was not the Coast Guard that one sees today. During the Civil War, it was indeed a Coast Guard, you know, guarding the coast so no one could land. Maine shares a long border with Canada. And it was a well-known fact during these troublesome times that Canada was a hotbed for Confederate plotting, blockade-running, counterfeiting, and other mayhem. The Coast Guard was an entity specifically designed to combat that and guard the main coast against any activity that might appear dangerous or subversive. It was manned, as one might expect, by old men and boys. Everyone else was already in the army. Members of the company assured Hamlin that since he was vice president of the United States, he did not have to report for duty, but would be given an honorary place on the roll. And Hamlin said, I am the Vice President of the United States, but I am also a private citizen, and as an enlisted member of your company, I am bound to do my duty. Then with a laugh he added, I aspire only to be a high private in the rear ranks and keep step with the boys in blue. Though Hamlin reported on July 7, 1864, fell into the routine of a soldier, guard duty, drills, arranging matters for housekeeping, the only concession the Vice President asked for and was granted, was as vice president to be quartered with the officers. A letter to Hamlin's wife reveals that he was doing everything. I do not think I will be able to write much of a letter this morning. Our cook is sick today, and I am supplying his place. I cooked breakfast, and of course all hands said it was first rate. Let me see. I made coffee and tea, baked cornfish, fried some potatoes, and added a nice Indian loaf from the baker. I have just got my dishes washed and room cleaned up, and it is time to begin our dinner. Joni Ernst and John Thune and Mike Pounds, so many, just a whole group of great people. Even if uh, he might have some trouble pronouncing his name, by all rights, Mike Pence will remain on the ticket. He remains popular with the Trump supporter base, 
There's a few comments here or there where he has, you know, strayed. Uh, but generally, he's kept a low profile and been very supportive of President Trump. Yet at the same time, why should we even talk about VP switches then? This is a non-issue. There was a, this is an issue that probably I'm getting too late, maybe, because there was some heated talk about it in April. All of a sudden, there was a series of stories that perhaps uh, Nikki Haley would be chosen uh, for the vice presidential ticket. It's not something being currently talked about a lot now. I still think it's important as we look at 2020 because there's more of an opportunity. Because um, generally, I feel VP switches are a tactic that's available to presidents, and it's surprising that it's not used as much, and that the reason it's not is mostly anchored in perhaps those thoughts of McGovern and that regret, and perhaps those thoughts of George H.W. Bush, that the press is going to kill me. There's probably never an opportunity for it than there is now. Trump doesn't follow norms. He doesn't have to worry about certainly what reporters would think. Well, Trump needed Pence during the 2016 cycle to kind of normalize the ticket among GOP establishment. You know, he's a former House member, a GOP governor. He's kind of a normal Republican. It's not clear he'll serve a political purpose now. Party's not split up. Trump has control of most of the GOP. Some pretty weak uh, GOP primary opponents that'll announce their candidacies and probably not win much. Those who oppose him will probably oppose him by picking another candidate. What does Pence serve? And you have a guy that, you know, has no trouble firing staff. The VP is not staff, but this is the one opportunity at a national convention where you can select someone else. Trump needs help with women, people in urban centers. So I would not, yes, there's an element of speculation to this. I think there'll be speculation that will continue into next year, but I don't think it's something idle to talk about at all. I want to thank you for listening. Remember, the website is www myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com we go into even more detail about Eagleton and McGovern in one of the premium casts on the on the extra cast that you get uh, if you join so think about subscribing helping out the show we have you can join for two dollars you can join for eight you can get a little more help the program out that's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com we're on twitter at myhist at m-y-h-i-s-t Appendix, Nixon and Hunter Thompson. There couldn't be two more different people, I think, than Hunter Thompson, the kind of creator of gonzo journalism, weirdo, uh, political reporter for Rolling Stone, very, you know, radical liberal guy, and Richard Nixon. But at some point, during the 1968 election, who ends up riding in the car together, talking about football? One of Nixon's aides comes over to the reporter pool and says, you know, the boss needs somebody to talk about football with. Well, here's how he describes it. I was the only one in the press corps that evening who claimed to be seriously addicted to pro football as Nixon himself. I was also the only out front, openly hostile peace freak. The only one wearing old Levi's and a ski jacket. The only one, well, there was one other who smoked grass on Nixon's big Greyhound press bus. 
and certainly the only one who habitually referred to the candidate as the dingbat. There was, of course, a catch. I had to agree about talking about nothing except football. We wanted the boss to relax, but he can't relax if you start yelling about Vietnam. I checked around, but the others are hopeless, so I guess you're it. Actually, I suspected he didn't know football from pig hustling, and that he had mentioned it from time to time only because his wizards had told him it would make him seem like a regular guy. But I was wrong. Nixon knows pro football. He'd taken Oakland in six points in the Super Bowl, he said, because Vince Lombardi had told him up in Green Bay that the AFL was much stronger than sports writer claimed. Oakland didn't fold up, he said. That second-half drive had Lombardi worried. I remembered it, and I mentioned the scoring play, sideline pass to an unknown receiver named Bill Miller. Nixon hesitated for a moment and then smiled broadly and slapped me on the leg. That's right, he said. Yes, the Miami boy. I couldn't believe it. He not only knew Miller, but he knew what college he played for. It wasn't his actual factual knowledge of football that stunned me. It was his genuine interest in the game. You know, the worst thing about campaigning for me is that it ruins the whole football season. I'm a sports buff, you know. If I had another career, I'd be a sportscaster or a sports writer. I smiled and lit a cigarette. The scene was so unreal that I felt like laughing out loud. To find myself zipping along a New England freeway in a big yellow car being chauffeured around by a detective while I relaxed in the backseat and talked about football with my own buddy, my old buddy Dick Nixon, the man who came within 100,000 votes of causing me to flee the country in 1960. We had a fine time. I enjoyed it, which put me off balance because I figured Nixon didn't know any more about football than he did about ending the war in Vietnam. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. 
Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.